This is a Hunt, Fish, Conserve podcast. Today, Ethan and Sydney are going to go over their recent trip to Georgia, where we fished, ate, and laughed our way through northern Georgia. So the first thing I want to kind of touch on is why we were in Georgia and why we traveled there. So I'll let Sydney talk about that for a second. Well, hi again. I'm on the podcast again. You just said Ethan and Sydney are going to... Do they know who I am? Yeah, they know. Um, Well, if nobody knows, this is my fiance, Sydney. Well, hello. Um, We do a lot of traveling in this household, but mostly I travel for work. So we were in Georgia because I had an elopement there in Blairsville, Georgia. So it was kind of near Helen, Georgia, near the Blue Ridge Mountains, about two hours away from Atlanta. And she booked me a few months ago and I was kind of like, Ethan, we should go. And we jokingly started looking up fly fishing there because it seems like every trip we take turns into a fly fishing trip. And turns out Northern Georgia actually has a huge fly fishing scene. So we decided to make a trip out of it and it was really fun. We stayed in Helen, Georgia, which was this little Bavarian town. So it was decorated all like a European town. And that was really cool. And then from Helen, we traveled to Blue Ridge. So it was in the mountains, really cute little place, tourist shops, fly shops, all kinds of fun stuff to do. Yeah, both are really big tourist destinations. And I like equated, I guess, like a Midwest. Um, I think you said it was like Niswa for Minnesota almost and like a similar like Okaboji kind of scene where it seems like a lot of people from either Florida or Georgia really like to go there, make like a yearly trip out of it or whatever. And they also like do a lot of, there's a lot of outdoor scene. There's a lot of hiking, there's fishing and there's tubing. So there's a lot of things to do there. And then there's for people that want to walk around in the shops and do all that kind of stuff and eat good food. But to kind of take a step back, even uh, farther back than that. So we flew into Atlanta, which is a huge city and airport to actually get to Blue Ridge and Helen and that kind of area. It was only like two hours north, which is like kind of shocking to me because Atlanta seems such like a huge city and it is a huge city. And it's like, before you knew it, you were like out of the city. And I didn't feel like there was too much traffic to get there, but yeah, it was like you were out of the city and like in this mountain, very densely forested. Yeah, like, you know, the agriculture scene isn't big, so they leave a lot of trees and a lot of like rolling hills. I mean, some of the driveways we saw were like absolutely crazy with like how people were like getting into them. I mean, because it's like they were just built on side of like a mountain or whatever. So that was kind of cool to see. Just a little different, I thought. I guess I thought to like kind of get out skirts of like Atlanta and travel north you have to, it would take a long time, but no, we got there pretty quick and it was kind of cool to see that you could, you know, leave a big city and go to someplace that's pretty wild, at least in my opinion. So, I mean, once you actually got out of the city though, cause it took probably 45, 50 minutes to get out of the city. And we were staying just South of Atlanta, like in a suburb and just 45 minutes outside of the city, there were mountains. So it was super interesting because I had no idea. And we had never been to Georgia before. So I guess we wouldn't know. Yeah. And then another thing is too, like, I feel like you always hear about it, but this like Southern hospitality. And I would say it's definitely like a real thing. Like, I mean, like the Midwest, nice, like we all know that, but I feel like the Southern hospitality definitely took me for, like when step back to kind of think about like, wow, this is actually like a real thing. Like our waitress and waitresses that were kind of running around 
helping us out when we were, I guess, what do you call that? Serving us. Uh, they were just so nice. Like, you know, honestly, like coming up and like being very genuine, asking us like, do you need anything? Can I get a refill? Is the food okay? And it just, it felt different, I guess, than a lot of other places we travel, especially for a tourist spot where it seems like people can get kind of burnt out about just, you know, kind of rude tourists coming through there. But it wasn't just servers. It was everywhere. Like, I didn't think it was true, but Southern hospitality is real, even in shops or, yeah, just walking around, everyone says hi, or everyone asks where you're from and starts a conversation with you. And that was really nice to see. Yeah. I mean, like I've been, we've been to quite a few fly shops and I mean, most of them have all been real nice fly shops, but I will say that like some of these ones, I don't know if it just like wasn't tourist season, so they weren't seeing as many people. But the ones that we went into were like super nice, helpful, gave us some like really good information on like where to go, what flies to use. And like, I can, you know, kind of just from like my experience, I can kind of be pretty good at like filtering out kind of like BS when they're talking about like, oh, this would be good. Or like maybe just trying to sell you on something that's like not really great. But I felt like these guys were actually like really nice and helpful. So. And they had lots of conversations off of one thing we'd say. They'd start you know, asking about us and asking about fishing and they pulled up maps and had us take pictures of maps and they were just overall super helpful compared to some of the places we've been. Yeah. Where it's just like their goal is like sell you something and get you out as fast as they can. So the one thing that I guess like we didn't, we obviously knew about it, but we didn't really think about it was like this barbecue scene and how big sweet tea is there. Yeah, we just have never really adventured in the South. And so we thought it was hilarious that anywhere you went, there was a barbecue place, which I feel like it's the same everywhere. Like there's always a barbecue place. But this was like there were barbecue places in the middle of nowhere and there were tons and tons in cities. And then the sweet tea, just everywhere you went, there were pitchers of sweet tea for them to refill your glass and at one restaurant ethan literally got like four refills and i was like dude stop drinking all the sweet tea and yeah you'd like look around like everybody had a sweet tea that they were drinking it didn't matter like the age if it was a male or female it's just everybody loves sweet tea there it was just funny to see like i think yeah sweet tea is their water and essentially like i feel like you just get a sweet tea with your meal not even water it's like what people is like kind of like the stereotype there but yeah like we said northern georgia lots of mountains very heavily forested we had some good views. I guess the one downside of being it so heavily forested, it's kind of hard to necessarily like kind of take some of the scenic views in. But we got some good pictures and got to see some good views. Yeah, there were some nice overlooks when you were driving through the mountains and stuff. There were a lot of little like two lane, not mountain roads, but kind of mountain roads, like passes almost, but not the same kind of mountain pass you'd think of. Um, but like super windy roads that you could only go like 30 on. And they were, yeah, extremely windy. I don't know if I've ever driven a road that crazy, curvy, turvy, downhill, uphill kind of thing. That was funny. No peaches, though. No peaches. What's up with that? We couldn't even find any in the grocery store. I think it just wasn't peach season. But that was like the one thing we were like, we got to try some Georgia peaches. Yeah. I mean, like you see it on the license plates, you see it on the signs, you just see everything's peaches. And you're like, I don't see no peaches here, but... That was kind of a funny thing then. A little sidebar that Sydney I had to keep making fun of. Did see some signs for some peach cobbler, but Sydney blocked me on having any peach cobbler. That we only saw it once. Saw it once and we were so full after eating barbecue. And I was like, we'll find it again. And we never did. So that's sad. Yeah, to kind of get into like the fishing scene in Georgia, 
I didn't really know much about the trout fishing. I knew some of the, like the saltwater stuff that they had just because it is on the coast. Um, and I knew some like the East Coast fly fishing scene. It's usually a lot of small stream fishing, uh, not huge rivers, nothing like here in like Montana. Even Iowa, I think, probably has some bigger, you know, streams and rivers than what even Georgia had. But the two things, uh, the one thing I want to definitely mention is we saw a lot of people spin fishing, lots of people. Which is nothing wrong with it. Um, Sydney and I fly fish when we were there, but you just see people like, and there was like no regulations on. I didn't. I mean, at least I didn't really see much. I mean, like I don't think they had like any size restrictions or like bait restrictions. Like people were just using worms and whatever to get whatever they could. But the thing was, the fish we were catching weren't big. Yeah, and so it's not like you were throwing in a spin fishing rod and then catching this monster fish. They were like. A lot of the wild ones where people were spin fishing were the size of our hand. And it's like you're trying to catch this little tiny thing on a spinning rod. And maybe that's fun for people, but I don't like doing it that way. Yeah. And it's funny because like the whole point of being like effective with fly fishing is that you can present a small lure at a great distance where like you can't do that with a spinning rod without it, you know, spooking fish. So to like, you know, they're ripping these Panther Martins through there and just stereotypical spin fishing lures. And it's just like, I mean, yeah, you might be able to get some trout to hit that, but just like it isn't very effective when sometimes the lure you're throwing is about the size of the fish. We did see a couple people on spin fishing rods catching fish, but only like one or two where most of the fly fishermen were catching a lot more. Yeah. And I think, you know, I saw some people like spin fishing. Um, one thing I thought was crazy was, I don't know if it's just a scene there, if we were just fishing, like, because the, the river that we fished, the Chattahoochee, is... We went way down yonder on the Chattahoochee. And uh, the funny thing was, is that it was very urban where we were fishing on the Chattahoochee. It was right in Helen. And the thing I thought that was crazy was, like, there, was, there wasn't much water to fish, but there was a decent amount where these guys would literally like, I was fishing a hole and I was, you know, putting my fly through the hole and literally these guys were like casting right to like where I was casting. And I was like, wow, like, I guess it's like, this is like urban competitive fishing. But that was one thing to notice about the spin fishermen is that I think a lot of them don't necessarily try hard. And I feel like this is everybody. It doesn't have to be fly fishermen or spin fishermen, but I feel like to really increase your success, you have to be able to like wade and like get to spots where these fish aren't being pressured as much because you see these people that literally walk right down to where everybody else walks and they try to cast it and it's like, well, I can tell you they're never going to catch a fish right there. So I think like being able to be mobile was definitely like a big part of our success because we had to do some rock scrambling and stuff. Well, there was a lot back up to that. There was a lot of private land in the Helen area on the Chattahoochee. Which, by the way, we had no idea that the Chattahoochee even passed through the town. We were going into it blind, just like, oh, we'll find a river to fish. And it was hilarious because there's a sign like the Chattahoochee River. And I'm like, oh, my God, that's the song. And so I was singing the song the whole weekend. Especially when you were fishing. I heard, yeah. I heard yeah. you humming it a little bit. Yeah. Um, but there was a lot of private land on the Chattahoochee just because there was resorts and houses and stuff like that through town and so we had to do a lot of rock scrambling to avoid going up onto the banks of the river and so that was kind of annoying but we worked with yeah, it Yeah, because in georgia and i feel like this is a lot of states that 
our east um our eastern states definitely don't have that wet foot rule that we kind of definitely sometimes maybe take for granted in like these western states where you know if you get in a public access like in montana the whole river is yours up to the high water mark so you can literally access it everywhere where like in georgia they actually have where private property is at they own like the river bottom and you can't legally like go through there and fish. The only thing that saved us in that case on the Chattahoochee was that Helen has a lot of the, the tubing scene is absolutely huge there. Um, there's like probably four or five tubing outfitters out of there. And since because of that, obviously you're tubing through private property there. So in that case, they also allow fishing through there. So it's a good spot to fish. But yeah, like there was definitely some spots where we had to even like get out because you weren't able to fish through there because it was private property. Like they don't want even people tubing through there. So we fished the, the urban section. We had a lot of success there. Um, it's just a very heavily stocked fishery, put and take fishery, uh, kind of, I guess you could almost like classify it as like a kid's fishery where you could have a lot of success. I don't know. We probably caught hooked like 25 fish, had a good day of fishing there. When I'm catching that many, you know, it's a good day. Yeah, like it was one of those things like, you know, your drift didn't have to be perfect. I mean, yeah, there wasn't like, and it was just like a lot of junk flies. Like you could tell that these fish were just like eating basically anything you could throw at them. You know, they're used to pellets from the hatchery. But so that was kind of, it was fun. I mean, always fun to bun to raw, especially explore new rivers. And yeah, I think that's always a good time. What do you think about fishing the urban part of the Chattahoochee? Well, Ethan rolled his eyes at me at one point because I said, wow, I'm actually getting sick of catching fish because we were catching so many at one point where it was like every cast they were taking your fly. And it was like, wow, you can really tell that these guys, these guys are stocked. And so I don't want to say I got a little bored, but I was getting sick of catching fish for a little bit because part of the allure of fly fishing is kind of the chase and getting to these wild areas. And of course, this wasn't a wild area. We just wanted to wet the line a little bit and see what the Chattahoochee was all about because there were so many people fishing it. And yeah, it was just a bunch of stocked fish and they weren't huge by any means. They were maybe 10, 12 inches long. And so that was fun. It was a fun, fun afternoon, but we really had fun when we went to the wild sections of the Chattahoochee. We didn't catch as many fish and they were definitely smaller wild fish, but we were able to kind of get out of town and we drove up this little forest service road in the Chattahoochee National, I think it was Wildlife Refuge or Wildlife Area. Wildlife Management Area, yep. And yeah, there were awesome pull-offs and steps down to the river. Like they really manage it pretty well, but that means there were also a lot of people because the access was easy, but the parts of the river we were able to fish, it was really beautiful, rocky, forested. We saw some beavers. So that was really fun. Yeah, that was in that, that's kind of like the headwaters. So basically the river kind of gets a lot more narrow in those sections and there's a lot of wild fish. So, you know, it's not as heavily stocked. I mean, those fish are somewhat stocked. They don't stock it as much though. But yeah, I mean, it was one of those things where there wasn't as many holes to fish. So you really had to be like careful, like where you're casting and it's kind of a little bit harder to spread out in those kind of spots. The fish aren't just all over the river. Like they are kind of on these bigger sections of river. So you kind of had to know both like fish behavior and where fish are going to hold. So that kind of contributed to our success. So we caught some browns in there and then caught some nice, um, Looked like some nice either hold over or like wild reproducing rainbows there. 
But there were also a lot of people recreating that weren't fishing, which made it kind of hard. There were people with their dogs letting them swim in the river and people just relaxing on the banks and swimming. Swimming. Yeah. So there were kind of a lot of people to maneuver, even though it was the more wild section. It was just easy to access. So lots of people were recreating, which was nice to see. But yeah, it's nice to see. And that's kind of what you get with public land, right? The other people are going to do things besides fishing or people that, you know, definitely don't even know that it has an impact. Like, I don't know if I told you this when I was fishing the Chattahoochee without you the night you were shooting, there was like a kid, like a little upstream of me who just literally like thought it was hilarious to like record a video of him jumping in the river. And like, he was like 20 feet ahead of me. Like, and I was just casting dry flies to that spot. And I was like, well, there goes all the fish, but it was just like funny. Cause it's like, yeah, I mean, public land, you kind of take with what you can get, especially some of these urban areas are easily accessible areas. That's what you're going to see. There is one thing. Uh, so yeah, we also, that was kind of the area around the Chattahoochee and kind of an overview of that. And the next part we went to was the Blue Ridge, um, was Blue Ridge, Georgia. And we kind of touched on the overview of that, but essentially there's another huge river that kind of goes through there is the Tacoa. It's a stocked fishery and has some wild reproducing browns, I believe. And essentially it's just right outside of town. So another really easily accessible section, but it's controlled by a dam, which is definitely a little unique because uh, you got to kind of careful around there because of the fact that they release water every day on like a set schedule through like, so when we were there, they released it from 10 to 1, 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. And then I think they did it some other times, but they weren't relevant to us. But just because they release so much water, yeah, you can't be in the river fishing. That's just very dangerous. You're going to get swept away. The current's running so fast. But the fishing access spots where we could like fish on public land, you had to be careful because of the fact that you had to let the water come down. So it was like, I think it was what, two hours probably? Yeah, they had a time chart. So basically they said, we release water from 10 to 1. Here's when you will be able to start fishing. And there was a time chart. And at obviously the end of the river, like toward the other lower access points, it was like four and a half hours from 1 p.m. when you'd be able to start fishing. And so... We kind of worked our way down. That's what everyone does. So there, we were fighting a bunch of people, but it was like, oh, at 1.30, you'll be able to start fishing right near the dam because all that water has rushed out and is like headed downstream. Then at 3.30, you'll be able to fish like the next public access spot, which was called like Curtis Switch. And then at 5.30, you'll be able to fish the next public access spot, which was called like Horseshoe Bend or something like that. And so, yeah, it's at it takes hours and hours for this water to obviously run down the river. So it was kind of a fun little. It was like a unique experience that's like another like factor consider, I guess, where it's like and even something you take for granted to where it's like, hey, I'm going to go fishing. And it's just like, but now like you fish on these rivers, it's like, well, I have to look at the dam schedule and then like figure out the time frame to even if I can go fishing. So, so we just did a long lunch. We walked around Blue Ridge, talked to the fly shop, did a lot of fun stuff in the town, sat in a restaurant for a while because we had to wait till one thirty, Um, and we got there at like 10. So we just had some time to waste and it was kind of fun to do that before we hit the river. Yeah. And that kind of, and the thing about that is that the river definitely raises pretty high, but Really, the thing that's like pretty kind of scary, I guess, in a lot of cases is that 
how fast the current runs. Um, I mean, yeah, the river runs. I mean, the river ra- rises uh, pretty significantly. But yeah, like the first time I took a step wading in it and it was really only up to like my waist. So nothing crazy, but like how fast that water was running, you had to be very careful. And from the time I got in the river until I was done fishing, I noticed that the current went down considerably. But yeah, that's something to definitely be scary of. It's like something to be worried and conscious of because of the fact of you could be really swept away pretty easily and taken under. And Well, everyone said that, though. Yeah. Like it wasn't just like a, oh, you know, like get out, but it's nothing too scary. Like you can stay in. They were like, no, if it's if it's on the schedule, you get out of the water. I bet it raised three feet yeah. in some places yep. and three feet on me. That's half my body. Well, more than half. So it's like, yeah, you can easily be swept away. But And there's no like sirens or that's anything. That's what I was going to say. That's the thing I thought was crazy was that there was no sirens. I mean, I was looking around at some of those access points. It's like you had to be looking at that website to see if when they were going to release and know the time frames. Otherwise, yeah, you wouldn't know. I mean, yeah, if you were coming from out of state like us and you didn't go to a fly shop and just started fishing and then all of a sudden the water started rising and it's like, whoa, what's happening? But especially like if you're in the middle of the river and got to get back to the shore. I mean, yeah. Yeah. I don't like waiting in the first place. And Ethan doesn't use a waiting staff like I would like him to. And so that is always a scary thought. Yeah, it's definitely something that like I feel like every time when you wade, usually you always have a couple close calls. And it's always something I need to like make sure I get better at. And it's even funny, like we saw an older guy fishing. You see a waiting staff in his truck and then of course he leaves it there. So I think it's just something that like it's a safety precaution that everybody should take and take seriously. But I think it's something that I obviously need to work on and be more safe when I'm doing it. Yeah. Coming from the girlfriend, fiance, wife person over here. The one thing I will say that's pretty crazy. Um, They stock it. They stock the fish very, very heavily in Georgia. Like I actually, I believe this, it's like a weekly stocking program, um, at least during this time that we were there. So it's, there's a lot of fresh fish in there. And the thing that was crazy to me is that the amount of like using junk fly. So a junk fly is what I would consider like an egg fly, a worm fly, anything that's like super bright and doesn't really like represent anything like a, like a fly, like a mayfly or betas or anything like that. Those flies work so perfectly on the stockers but i would try like natural flies on those stockers they had no interest in it i don't know if they just like weren't like keyed in on it like didn't really like know what it was it was like literally like worms all day that's all we caught them on was a squirming worms red red squirming yeah red squirming worms and i didn't tie enough of those but yeah we lost a couple and then all of a sudden it was like well what are we gonna use now yeah then i used some like rainbow warriors which definitely yeah it can be used like on some like heavily pressured tailwaters but I would still kind of throw it in like the attractor, not junk fly, but more like an attractor, not really imitating anything. And then like going to like the Tacoa, which is more pressured, but doesn't receive as much stocking as the Chattahoochee. The natural f- presentations, you know, work everything that didn't work on the Chattahoochee that was natural. It worked on the Tacoa for natural presentations. Um, so I would say that was kind of just a funny little observation that I had. That's kind of all I had on those two rivers. And those are the two spots that we fished, um, just had time to fish those. So everything was kind of spread out. So when we asked, like when the Tacoa was running high because of the dam, we were like, oh, well, we have some time to waste. Are there any, you know, little tributaries or anything that we could fish? And he was like, I mean, 
if you want to drive for hours. So everything's kind of spread out. So we kind of just picked the two bigger, I don't want to say easier, but kind of easier rivers because we didn't have that much time and went for it. And it was raining the day that we fished the Tacoa. So of course I was a baby about it and I got cold and the water was cold and Ethan was wet waiting, but I had my waders, but I was still kind of cold. So I was like, I'm out. So Ethan caught a bunch of fish. I didn't catch any on the Tacoa. Yeah. And the one thing that I feel like people think about, and even I do too, when you think about like East Coast, Eastern trout fishing is the small streams. So, and they do definitely have a lot of small streams, a lot of cool things, um, such as like you got to hike, you know, two miles in and there's this waterfall that creates a pool that has like reproducing brook trout. You know, they're not very big, maybe the size of long way of your hand or whatever, but it's still cool to catch them. And, you know, they're very eager because they don't necessarily see the most pressure where they'll take a lot of dry flies and stuff. I didn't necessarily bring any rods to do that. And we didn't, like Sydney said, we didn't have a time to do that, but that is something that I definitely could see a lot of enjoyment of, you know, fishing these fiberglass seven foot, you know, two weights, even three weights casting, you know, small, delicate dry flies and catching a bunch of fish, uh, having an accurate cast because a lot of those places are overgrown but when you're traveling too it's hard to bring a bunch of different rods yeah, exactly. so we only brought two rods and to that point uh that kind of goes into the next thing so when we were fishing the headwaters of the chattahoochee which like i said was a little narrower uh i had a little mishap this is my favorite part of the trip uh just because it happens all the time ethan slipped big shocker he falls a lot he's clumsy that's why i love him um and he snapped a rod and this is probably the fourth trip that we have snapped a rod. And so I guess we always bite ourselves in the butt every single time because it's like we should start bringing three or four rods, not two. So our second day of fishing, we only had one rod to fish with. I thought it was hilarious just because it's just our luck. Um, and the rod had a warranty so he can get it replaced. So it's not that big of a deal, but <laughs> poor guy falls, snaps a rod, pouts about it for a little bit as I'm giggling in the corner. Yeah. It was just like, I mean, like, yeah, it seems that I slipped. Yeah. I had the rod out in front of me and as I slipped, I think I got caught. It kind of got lodged in between a tree, I believe. And I came down and I believe like my elbow or my hand just absolutely had enough force as my body was coming down and it just sounded like a twig broke, like a stick yeah. broke. Like it was very violent. And then like violent, it was a violent break. <laughs> I thought, and like, I didn't know this rod broke right away. And Sydney informs me, she goes, Oh no. And I'm like, what? And she's like, and I look and there's the rod one section's hanging and then another section's hanging and they're not together. And I was like, and it's just like one of those things like, yeah, you travel and just like, yeah, you don't have another rod which we're lucky enough we did have another rod, but like you said, we kind of had to share the rod back and forth. Which worked out okay anyway. Yeah, and it worked out okay. And it was one of those things, uh, you know, fortunate enough, that's kind of why you buy these nice rods that have these good warranties because it seems like this stuff always happens. It just sucks when you're far away from home and like can't go get another one. I think this is the fourth rod we've snapped. Yeah, this was definitely the nicest rod we ever snapped. <laughs> this is <was> my <laughs> nicest fly rod, so... That was kind of he a was kicker. almost in tears about it. <laughs> I just I thought it was so funny because I just expect it now, like something to go wrong while fishing. And fishing is the only thing Ethan gets worked up about. Like all shit could be hitting the fan in our life. And Ethan's so chill, like cool as a cucumber. And then when it comes to fishing, everything stresses him out and everything gets him worked up. 
And so I'm just giggling about it. And he's like, but my rod. And I'm like, dude, it's fine. Yeah, it's just, I don't know. And at least this is like another moment. I don't know if I, I don't know if I actually mentioned this to you, but you were literally like, you want to go buy a new one? And I was like, oh, like this is totally why I'm marrying this girl. She's like totally encouraging of my fishing addiction. So that was funny. But then I said, it's your money. Yeah. Then I was, and he, and he goes, not the joint account. <laughs> so didn't happen. Yeah, too bad you didn't break it. Then it could have been the joint account. Yeah, it could have been. So tell them what we actually did to be successful on the river. A lot of people, I mean, you've probably talked about it in a podcast, but a lot of people down there are fishing dry flies. We aren't necessarily dry fly people. Yeah. And it's one of those things. I just feel like when you go to these kind of sections of the river where you aren't super keyed in on like the hatches or the presentations or, you know, just like anything like the dry fly game can be so minute in the sense of like, hey, you have a 16 purple haze. They're actually eating an 18 or size 20. And oh, yeah, like they want this certain type of hackle and not necessarily like your regular brown hackle and all that kind of stuff. And it just kind of like kind of works me up a little bit like to like kind of like prepare for all that because I hate to tie dry flies just for like a certain section that I don't know if I'm going to go back and yeah like we supported the fly shops and bought flies from them but and like yeah like you know there's some terrestrial particular flies like the you know like a cat elk hair caddis or parachute ad a purple haze and all those kind of flies can work in a lot of different places and they would have worked there we just weren't fishing like the stockers wouldn't really rise too much Maybe if I would have put a dry fly in front of them, but they didn't really rise enough for me to like convince me to put a dry fly on. And also they don't get huge hatches down there. They get some like small, I saw some bugs hatching, but they didn't really see any like huge hatches. So it didn't really convince me enough to really put, even think about putting dry flies on. So I just went to the back to like the nymphing game. Not always the most exciting um, or visual, but it's always the most successful in my opinion. Ethan's bread and butter. Euro nymphing. Yeah. And I just feel like it's just something where like if I'm I'm going to these places to catch fish, I don't really necessarily care how I catch them. Like I'm not gonna be like, oh, I'm gonna shuck like a you know, a six inch six inch sex dungeon or whatever to like catch these flies to catch them on streamers or hey, I gotta go and like, you know, catch all these fish on dry flies. Like I am there for a very short time. I definitely want to catch some fish. I am the most confident Euro nymphing, and I feel like if you are an effective Euro nympher you can go to a lot of different of these watersheds and be successful, especially like there's like, and you know, a lot of these flies, yeah, they have like, you know, betas is hatch all over. So, and betas is are probably about every major river system. Caddis are, so, you know, like you just tie your caddis nymphs and your pheasant tail nymphs, which work all over the country and take them there and present them in a nice way. And these fish are going to definitely take them. So. I even caught a bunch yeah. this time and I'm not, a am not great at Euro nymphing yet. Um, and this was a good place to practice. Yeah. And it's just like, you know, and it's one of those things like learning how to fight fish on, you know, these big rods that are, you know, kind of takes, you know, you can muscle these fish away, but you're also fishing light tippet. So this is just a good practice time. And yeah, like, I mean, yeah, I wish I would have been there for some great hatches, but I feel like betting on dry fly fishing when you're traveling, like we were, it's just, it's just tough. But another thing we didn't really touch on yet. And this is probably one of the cooler things I thought about the whole trip was in Blue Ridge, Georgia, there is a bamboo fly rod maker. So if anybody doesn't really know, so I'm just gonna give you an overview about how rods are like manufactured or like what materials they are. So a lot of the fly rods on the market today are all graphite. There are some fiberglass ones. Um, and then there's bamboo. 
So graphite's the most uh, dominant fly rod, not even fly rod. I would say all rod components are usually made out of graphite. And then there's fiberglass. You see some fiberglass spinning rods, see some fiberglass fly rods. I have a fiberglass fly rod in a smaller, um, like it'd be like kind of like my small stream rod. Just definitely can kind of, has a different little feel like when you load the rod for casting and it definitely fights fish a little bit differently. Um, And then there's bamboo. So I've never casted a bamboo fly rod. I've seen very few in my life. There's a guy in Preston, Minnesota. Is it Pre- No, it's Lanesboro. He makes them. Lanesboro, Minnesota, which is in the Jeffos area. I've never really seen. He doesn't have a shop so like out in the open, um, but he makes bamboo rods. But an overview of like kind of like rods and like how they're manufactured. But so kind of like and kind of I guess you could kind of say where it's like. Now, this isn't always true, but graphite and fiberglass can be kind of similarly priced. And then there's the bamboo f- bamboo fly rods, which can just be ridiculously priced. Because they're handmade. Yeah, they're handmade. Um, they're not mass produced. So the bamboo fly rod, there was a maker in Blue Ridge, Georgia that has a shop, Oyster Bamboo Rods. And they actually do classes there where it's six days of instructions. You take a raw piece, uh, take a piece of raw bamboo, and then you make a fly rod out of it. I mean, you're putting the ferrules on it. You're putting the guides on it. You're doing it all by hand yourself. They don't help you. Yeah, they don't help you. Like you're doing it all yourself. You're putting the the real seats on everything like that. And it's a, it's a work of art. Um, so it takes six days to do that. You can kind of do it in whatever kind of style you want. So if you want it in a 12, I mean, like they were saying that they people make 12 weight rods out of it. People make, you know, the three weight small, um, small stream rods out of it. So that was kind of crazy. I think the thing that really took me back is like the big interest in it, I guess. So I can't remember how many seats do they have. Is it 10 seats a class? I think they said they added two more desks because there's like work desks in the studio. So you go to the studio where we were. So it's a storefront in Blue Ridge, Georgia, and you walk in and it's basically a vacation. It's a six day intensive making a fly rod. And they say that people do this year after year and it's three grand to do it. Um, there's like 10 ish spots. We actually didn't get that answer, but they are booked out for every single class until 2025. And we counted them and it looks like they do around 20 to like 22 classes per year. And if they have, you know, 10 spots, it's a lot it's a lot of money in this business, but if you are not making it and they're making one for you, they put around 40 hours into one of these rods and they, again, it's all by hand. They engrave things. They, it's a, it's beautiful. They had a few rods out in the shop and they're around four grand to purchase. I mean, this guy oyster, I think it's bill oyster. Mm -hmm. Um, he has made rods for like the queen of England and the president and senators, lots of people come to him to make these special bamboo fly rods. And it was really cool to see they had videos going. You could actually watch them in the studio making stuff. It was really cool. We just couldn't believe that they were fully booked out these sessions to make your own bamboo rod for three thousand dollars they booked out until 2025 yeah and then like i think the one thing that he really is like claim to fame at least from what i kind of understood and 
is that his engraving and like the special details he'll do for some of these rods. Like I think one guy had like what diamonds put in his, in a rod (laughs) for his wife and just like these other things that like you just honestly wouldn't think. And it's just kind of like muddying the water between like a fly rod and like, you know, a piece of art really. And it's just like, it's crazy. I mean, like these are, these are pieces of art in my opinion. Well, and it was really cool because his dad was running the front desk. So you walk in and it's obviously a store. So they have, you know, you can buy reels, you can buy shirts and hats and learn about bamboo rods and all this stuff. And you walk in and there's this old man sitting at the front and he, again, Southern hospitality, he asks us where we're from and we get into into a conversation and we probably talked with him for 15 minutes just about where we were from. And then he talked about the business and it's his son who started making these rods. So yeah, it was really cool to hear from him. And he said that they have one woman who has come for 22 years in a row to make a rod at one of these classes and people just treat it like a vacation. And it was really cool to hear from him. We asked him how many he's made. And he said he's made one for all of his grandkids, all of his kids. And I guess my question was, this is always like, how much are these rods really getting fished? Or are they really just going up on the wall right away? You know, it's like, because I think a lot of people treat them, like they said, as a family heirloom where you pass it down generation after generation. So, I mean, I guess I would kind of circle back. I would hate to do what I did to my rod. Like I broke it that I would hate to do that to a bamboo rod. So it's like, I maybe see like you could go out and cast it and, you know, try to catch a fish once on it just so you did. But I don't know. I'd have a very tough time taking that one out in the water. Well, and we were joking too. I was like, Ethan, is this something you actually want to do in the future? And he goes, maybe when I'm retired. Yeah. It's just a lot of money to put into a rod where like three grand to make your own rod. You could spend three grand and go on an awesome, awesome guided trip. Yeah. Yeah. To some of these like saltwater locations and stuff that definitely kind of pique my interest a little more right now. But yeah, I think it was definitely cool to see it. I kind of knew about the bamboo fly rod scene a little bit, but nothing like this, I guess. So I was really taken back on that. Definitely check them out. The website is oysterbamboo.com and they have more information about the classes and the bamboo fly rods and all of his engraving. And he does some really, really, really cool stuff. Yeah. And there was one thing too. I mean, even looking at those, like, have you ever seen, I think Sydney, the first time you ever saw those Abel reels, right? Those fly reels that were like really spendy. Yeah. I mean, that was crazy too. I mean, they're $1,500 reels that people are like, uh, you know, putting well, on these bamboo rods. Yeah. Oh, here, I'll make my bamboo rod for three grand and then put a $1,500 yeah. reel on it. So. I don't know. It's, it's cool to see. Um, definitely was kind of like a highlight of my highlight of the trip for me to kind of see that I've never really heard of them or even knew about the scene. So definitely cool to see. Awesome. Well guys, that's kind of all I had about the trip for Georgia and kind of the fishing and kind of our first trip down to the South. I would like to kind of make more trips down to the South to kind of explore some of these Appalachian mountain trout streams. Yeah. We were actually right where the Appalachian trail started. Yeah. So that was really cool too. We just saw a lot of country that I don't think we would have seen if I wouldn't have booked a shoot here. Mm-hmm. Um, we're out West people. So I think we should start adventuring more down South a bit, but definitely head to North Georgia. It was right kind of on the Tennessee border a little bit, um, but head there, check out some of these small streams, wet the line a little bit. It was a great trip. Yeah. Have some good barbecue and sweet tea. so um thanks guys for listening i appreciate it check out the awesome tiktok uh we made over on my podcast page ready to wander 
you can find it on Instagram um, at ready to wander. But it was we made a really fun TikTok about the Chattahoochee River. So if you want to get a little look into what we did. Otherwise, yeah, thanks for having me. See you next time. Bye.